This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'd like to start out today's program with a big thank you. First of all, thanks to all the people that have been sending us information here at Radio Parallax. We have decided that we need to do a second program this week as sort of a public service announcement, as best we can create one. Because, as I think you have all noticed by now, there's a tremendous amount of data streaming about. And uh, some of it isn't, isn't that good. Some of it is very good. Um, we're trying to do our best to separate the signal from the noise which we'll do part two of for this week today. Thanks also to the people who are out there continuing to, first of all, treat people, doctors, nurses, etc. Thank you all for staying on the job, and thank you for staying on your regular job if you're out there doing what you can to keep society moving along in these troubled times. It's important that we have a certain amount of business as usual, And in that regard, we have to acknowledge Mr. McMillan, who has traveled 110 miles from Sacramento County to Alameda so that we can record this show. Fortunately, he did not have to circumvent any police barricades, at least yet. We're getting a lot of feedback from a lot of people, and that's very, very helpful. Thank you all, and, you know, keep keep it coming. We're trying to keep this positive. We're looking first and foremost for some positive news here, and there is some. If you're living here in Northern California, as many of you are who are listening, you would note that the weather has been cold, crisp, and very nice. And it's a great time to go for a walk and appreciate the blue sky, white clouds, and pleasant climate. Take time, smell some roses, something we all have an opportunity to do now at great, at great length, and, and we should, and I, and I hope everybody is. This pandemic may be the worst thing we've seen in the last hundred years, as Larry Brilliant has pointed out, but uh, we're going to get through this. Well, most of us are. And from this, I hope we learn some valuable lessons that will make society better in the future. First thing I think of along those lines is now that we've seen all these tech workers work from home, which ought to be pretty easy if you're a tech worker, once this thing passes, why don't we leave people working at home? There is an upside in this pandemic is how nice traffic is, at least in the Bay Area. I'm surprised at how much traffic there still is, actually. To me, it reminds me of of what it was like, say, 20 years ago. Much reduced, but still significant. In the last 20 years, of course, we brought umpteen number of people to the Bay Area to work mainly in the tech industries, and we've created a bit of a traffic nightmare. Also a housing crisis, also more pollution, also all sorts of bad things from having too many people in one spot. We were promised by the technology industry that, you know, this wouldn't happen. We would be able to have people work at home. I mean, why not? Your home computer is pretty much as good as your computer at work. But somewhere about less than a decade ago, some of the, I think it's fair to say, pathologically avaricious types in control of these tech companies, decided that although people were actually more efficient at work in their homes, they were losing out on some new innovations by not having people interact with one another at the water cooler. So they decided the solution to that was make everybody drive in from 
Milpitas or Pleasanton or Tracy or Lathrop or Modesto and keep your job in Sunnyvale, Mountain View, Palo Alto, Menlo Park. This whole process could use a rethink, and I hope that um, this epidemic will spur that. We also need to revive the moribund national and international discussion on population control. We absolutely need to do that because of pandemics, if nothing else. I mean, there's lots of other good reasons, but let's, let's focus today on pandemics. I'm reading quite a bit about viruses of late. Unfortunately, I have some textbooks uh, on my shelf to, to do that with, to supplement what's on the internet. I was a little bit surprised to pick up my copy of Microbiology, Principles and Explorations by Jacqueline Black, 6th edition, to note that a decade and a half ago, her list in Table 10.1 in the book of the major viruses that cause human disease didn't bother to include coronavirus. It's a strange omission. Coronavirus was definitely known to cause human disease, just that it didn't cause serious human disease. Back at the turn of the 21st century, coronavirus for no, was known for giving you a cold. 15 to 30% of colds were laid at its doorstep. If you'd asked people 15 years ago what they thought the next big pandemic was going to be, I, I would imagine a lot of epidemiologists would have laid money on influenza. The authors of this book noted that since 1998, this is written in 2005, since 1998, a new flu virus of triple origins, human, duck, and pig, has been circulated in the U.S., which also worries us. Influenza has shown this ability to shuffle the deck of the genetic material between avian and pig and human species. And although we've seen some nasty cases of avian flu, which you no doubt read about in the news in the past few years, that particular strain was always going from fowl to human, not human to human transfer. This textbook notes that sequencing of the flu genome has indicated that the virus is still entirely avian. No swapping has yet occurred. But as long as humans and poultry remain in close contact, it is probably only a matter of time before it does. It has been recommended that live poultry markets be prohibited and that birds be killed before being shipped to the city. And on the next page of this textbook, in its section talking about emerging viruses, notes that one of the disease transmission mechanisms of great concern today is air travel. Since the 1950s, the annual number of international air travel passengers has risen from 2 million to almost 600 million. In the confined air system of a jet airplane, an ideal atmosphere for the rapid spread of disease, a person or mosquito harboring an emerging virus could carry the virus around the world overnight. Particularly worrisome today is transmission of severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS. Boy, does that look prophetic. So, it asks, how do we protect ourselves from such potential viral threats? Many virologists suggest that virus outposts be set up to try and detect emerging viruses before they spread. Viruses such as HIV that spread slowly might be hard to detect because they take years to emerge on a global scale. Conversely, the yellow fever virus shows clinical symptoms in non-immunized individuals within days, if not hours. Perhaps quarantine will be required for people visiting or working in areas suspected of harboring emerging viruses. 
I can tell you that the folks in Costa Rica took the threat of yellow fever pretty seriously. When visiting Costa Rica several years ago, having come there from Colombia, I got a re-education in the fact that, uh, well, if you're going to visit Costa Rica and you're coming from a country that has yellow fever in it, they expect you to produce a yellow health certificate showing you have been immunized. It turned out the last time I visited Costa Rica, coming from South America at that time as well, I had such a card. I was ready. This time I'd sort of forgotten that they needed that. Luckily for me, in this instance, I was aided by corrupt local officials. I don't think I'll go into details about how this went down, but suffice it to say, an exchange took place wherein $200 magically transformed itself into a yellow vaccination certificate. Now, before you criticize me and ask how it is as a doctor I was willing to spread yellow fever from South America into Central America, I would hasten to add that I did not visit any area in Colombia where yellow fever was present. But the rule in Costa Rica didn't allow for that. If you'd been to Colombia and Colombia was a country where they had yellow fever, you were stuck. So I exercised my medical judgment. I do mention this because it's clear that under any circumstances, people are going to bend and break the rules. But at this point, I want to digress on what the rules are in places that seem to have slowed the virus down. China is currently reporting that their epidemic is, is flat. The numbers are flat. Travel restrictions are, being, uh, restric- travel restrictions are being relaxed in most of Hubei province, although Wuhan is still uh, on lockdown. And there are people of optimistic bent who think that if China has done it, we can do it too. But we need to look at how China did it. New Scientist magazine in their February 22nd issue, which was probably put together many days before that, took a look at this. Under the headline, China uses mass surveillance tech to fight spread of coronavirus, we have the following. This is a piece by Donna Liu. In a bid to contain the country's coronavirus outbreak, the Chinese government has teamed up with tech firms to monitor citizens and track confirmed cases of infections with the COVID-19 virus. On 16th February, Alipay, the world's largest mobile payments platform, announced that a color-coded QR phone app to monitor individuals in China would be available within a week. The app assigns individuals a QR code with red, yellow, or green status based on their travel history and self-reported health. Anyone flagged as red is instructed to remain quarantined 14 days. People flagged as yellow for seven. Authorities can scan an individual's QR code to log their movements. QR codes are being deployed at travel checkpoints, including hanging from drones at highway toll booths. Drivers are required to scan them before their car is allowed to enter cities, a process that can track the location of people by their Chinese resident identity card number. Other technologies tap into the Chinese government's vast collection of citizens' data to screen for coronavirus carriers. The Close Contact Detector mobile app developed by the state-owned China Electronics Technology Corporation, CETC, pulls data from national health, aviation, and transport authorities. Purchasing train and plane tickets in China requires ID, and the state-owned China Rail has a database of all trips taken since the year 2000. Once a user registers with their name, ID card number, and phone number, the app flags whether in the previous fortnight the user has lived 
worked or traveled with a person confirmed or suspected to have coronavirus. The system flags people who have sat within three rows of each other on a plane or in the same air-conditioned train compartment. The first two days after it was introduced, the app was used 100 million times and detected more than 70,000 close contacts who could have had coronavirus, according to the CETC. State-run apps require a user to input their personal details, but others, developed by some Chinese tech firms, don't. The smart assistant function on Huawei phones in China, for example, pulls information from Ding Zhan Wan, or DXY, a website for medical professionals, to let people search by flight number to see if there were any suspected or confirmed cases. An app in Chinese messaging platform WeChat allows someone in a city to locate the nearest confirmed case registered by Chinese health authorities and the date somebody with coronavirus was last there. Cases are color-coded red and orange to indicate cases diagnosed within the previous 14 and 28 days, respectively. The article concludes by noting the widespread tracking of Chinese citizens raises privacy concerns. The city of Hangzhou has detained or fined nine people for lying about their travel and medical history since the outbreak began. Authorities in Shanghai have vowed to take similar measures. We've received on this program unconfirmed reports that things are a lot worse in China than the authorities let on. One unconfirmed, I guess you'd say third or fourth hand report by now we received was that the crematoria were working overtime outside of Wuhan. As we sit here and record today, we note that Italy has now passed China in the number of cases and curiously has many, many more fatalities than China. Looking at the numbers, by the way, this correspondent predicted four days ago that by the 4th of April, we would probably have 240,000 cases in the U.S., and it's, it's this lead pipe cinch we're going to get there a lot sooner than that. We should note at this point there's a great deal of confusion over, well, many aspects of this. One of the, one of the key statistical points that we're stuck on is what is the number of asymptomatic cases to symptomatic cases. And although it's clear the number is greater than one-to-one, meaning the symptomatic cases are, are less than half of the true number of people that are infected, it actually may be a much, much higher ratio. As talked about on this show just a few days ago, the multiple is probably not two-to-one. It might be as high as seven-to-one. This is really good when you factor in the death rate to note that it actually is a lot lower than we think from people who have contracted the virus. That's, that's the good news. The bad news is if it's being spread all over the world much faster than we realize, well, it's going to do what it's going to do. It's going to sicken who it's going to sicken, and it's going to kill who it's going to kill, and we're not going to do much about that, at least until we find some effective therapies. Of course, there's a lot of good news on that front. Uh, there's some small studies showing that certain combinations of drugs work, and of course, all over the world, people are working overtime to find stuff that's going to stop this, and, and some of them surely will. Just a question of when we can find them and how quickly we can manufacture whatever we need. But back to China. We've read some reports that, you know, when you're confirmed as testing positive, you, <laughs> you are put into quarantine, and that, furthermore, the contacts you have had, if they're solid, are sometimes also put into quarantine. This is not like sheltering at home on the honor system here in the Bay Area. 
We were told by our favorite Chinese dissident doing blogging from Toronto, Mr. Wen Zhao, that it was 10 times worse in China than people were letting on. We, we simply don't know. The Chinese have not been very forthcoming about having reporters nose around and report. In fact, it seems they've been deporting quite a few. But in defense of the Chinese, we would note that, you know, they took this thing seriously based on their previous experience with the last epidemic they experienced of SARS. That was back in 2002. Looking at my other, one of my other microbiology books, this is Murray Rosenthal and Fowler from 5th edition, Medical Microbiology, also from 2005. Referring back to 2002, the textbook notes that the virus was shown to be a coronavirus by its electron microscopic morphology and by reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, RT-PCR, which I think is what we're using here. The virus apparently leapt to man from animals. The virus apparently leapt to man from animals, masked palm civets, raccoon dogs, and Chinese ferret badgers, raised for food. A World Health Organization global alert prompted containment measures to limit the spread of the virus and controlled the outbreak to 8,000 infected individuals. Travel restriction and public concern resulted in a loss of hundreds of millions of dollars in travel and other business. That's a number to keep in mind. The last SARS epidemic was stopped at 8,000. The textbook notes that virus isolation of the coronavirus is difficult, and for SARS-CoV, this is back the CoV-1, we're now dealing with CoV-2, but I'm sure it's the same, requires stringent biosafety level 3 conditions. Testing of samples suspected of containing SARS-CoV must be performed with appropriate biosafety level 2 precautions attainable in many virologic laboratories. Serology tests using enzyme-linked immunoabsorbent assay, ELISA, can be used to evaluate acute and convalescent sera. In other words, you've had it and cleared it. I understand the Chinese are now using such tests. We apparently don't have them available here yet. We're making inquiries with people that know about such things, and we'll report uh, on the next show. The Chinese took the viewpoint that another emerging virus, as they're called, would come our way and acted appropriately. We did not do so here, although we do also want to run down this confusing matter of what the WHO ordered, what the U.S. turned down. We also need to run down some of the confusion of what the WHO offered to the United States. Uh, there's, there's a lot of confusion about this test question, uh, that what the CDC did and what the CDC authorized. There's some really hairy rumors out there suggesting the possibility that some of this uh, testing delay may have to do with what companies Donald Trump owns stock in. We'll see what we can do about probing that matter. But we do feel an obligation to report, in fairness to Donald Trump, that the widespread understanding that Donald Trump in January at a campaign rally in South Carolina called the coronavirus a democratic hoax is somewhat imprecise and a little unfair to Trump, although in my opinion, only a little bit unfair. Mr. Trump was not disputing the fact that there was a virus out there doing some harm. What he was claiming was the Democrats were making a big deal out of it and his response to it. And it was that that constituted the Democrat hoax. Now, since the federal response is obviously at this point woefully inadequate and deserving of criticism... We'll just back off and note that we're going we're gonna to stick to what definitely accurate, dead-on criticisms, of, of which we will, I think, find a few. Because America 
has not been adequately prepared for a pandemic, in spite of the fact that every epidemiologist and really every doctor, I think, knows that it was never a matter of if it was only a matter of when. We appear to be stuck with reports like this one sent to us from Grenada by a physician who has contributed to this show in the past. What kind of blows my mind is that this, this comes from Medscape.com, which is a pretty solid, down-the-pipe medical information site. After speaking on our last show about what was going on in the Long Beach VA, I think that we need to read a little bit of this. Article by Alicia Alt starts out noting that as upper management patrolled the halls at one hospital in California, telling staff they could be fired on the spot for wearing N95 masks brought from home, one nurse asked to see the policy. The administrator told her if she was going to wear one, she needed a note from her doctor. As hospitals watch their supply of masks and other personal protective equipment, PPE, dwindle, they've severely curtailed their use. But the constraints have become so restrictive that physicians and nurses on the front lines of the pandemic believe their health is being sacrificed to assuage staff and patient morale. Practitioners are reacting with fear and rage, and they are facing everything from ridicule to reprimand or worse for taking matters into their own hands. Some are being told by hospital administrators they cannot wear PPE in hallways or that they can't bring their own PPE to a facility. In some cases, practitioners are being threatened with disciplinary actions or even fired when they've continued to use gloves, masks, and other gear. The hospitals point to a variety of reasons for their actions, from the idea that PPE need to be conserved, which is stupid because people are bringing them in from home in some cases, and used as minimally as possible, yeah, I don't know what that means, to the notion that it scares patients. Yeah, well, a lot of us are pretty scared right now. He notes that private Facebook groups, Twitter, and other social media outlets are bursting with stories from doctors, nurses, and other health care workers. Many are anxious and fearful. Some are losing faith in administrators. Oh, well, that wasn't the first time I'll bet that happened. Who tell them that working without PPE is safe, even while providing no evidence to back up those assertions. Reportedly, a Dr. Ali Halder tweeted, I'm tired of hearing stories of docs and nurses getting reprimanded by, this, by the suits for wearing a freaking surgical mask when they're on a unit because it looks bad. At a hospital in the Chicago area, one clinician found and wore a P100 mask to work and said the infection control nurse told him, you cannot wear this mask in the hospital, you're scaring people. According to a memo issued a week ago by the California Nurses Association and National Nurses United, nurses at Kaiser Permanente were being told they could be fired on the spot for wearing their own N95 masks. Radio Parallax encourages all people who may have received such advice, which we suspect is true, to tell the administrator, go ahead, fire me. We'll see where this goes after I talk to the media. And yes, we consider ourselves part of the media. If any of you have been fired for that, give us a call or drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax. We will put you on the air. As part of our PSA, we should talk a little bit about face masks. It is true at present that the CDC does not recommend that the general public wear either N95 respirators or surgical masks. The FDA notes that surgical masks are made in different thicknesses and with different ability to protect you from contact with liquids. These properties may also affect how easily you can breathe through the face mask and how well the surgical mask protects you. They also note surgical masks are not to be intended to be used more than once. 
If your mask is damaged or soiled, or if breathing through the mask becomes difficult, you should remove the face mask, discard it safely, and replace it with a new one. To safely discard your mask, place it in a plastic bag and put it in the trash. Then wash your hands after handling the used mask. An N95 respirator, on the other hand, is a protective device designed to achieve a very close facial fit and is very efficient for filtration of airborne particles. The N95 designation means that when subjected to careful testing, the respirator blocks at least 95% of very small, in this case, 0.3 micron test particles. If properly fitted, the filtration capabilities of N95 respirators exceed those of face masks. Chris, one of our doctor contributors, has pointed out to us that the coronavirus in this case is considerably smaller than 0.3 microns. As to whether people are picking up the disease from, you know, a stray virus in the air versus numerous viruses attached to bits of moisture exuded from the person is something we don't, I think, have an answer for quite yet. Here's another tidbit. N95 respirators are not designed for children or people with facial hair because a proper fit cannot be achieved on children and people with facial hair. Most N95 respirators are manufactured for use in construction and other industrial-type jobs that expose workers to dust and small particles. However, some N95 respirators are intended for use in healthcare settings, specifically single-use disposable respiratory protective devices used and worn by healthcare personnel during processes to protect both the patient and healthcare personnel from the transfer of microorganisms, etc. Some N95 respirators uh, have exhaust some N95 respirators have exhalation valves that can make breathing out easier and help reduce heat buildup, but those with such exhalation valves should not be used when sterile conditions are needed. Anyway, although it remains too early to say this definitively, it, it certainly appears that California is doing a lot better than New York as regards COVID cases, and at least part of that uh, favorable comparison is from our sheltering-in-place policies. As of the first week in March, California and New York were neck and neck on cases of COVID-19, but over the past week, New York case counts have doubled every few days, and the state now has 10 times the number that California does, 25,000 versus 2,500. That's several days old data. California is now over 4,000, but New York's more than keeping pace. It's, I think, 45. People have pointed out they're also doing more tests in New York than they are in California. And this question of how many tests we have, how many are getting done, is, uh, is, a, is a huge question mark hanging over all of this. Because we're conserving tests, we're apparently only testing people who we suspect have the disease. As mentioned earlier, I think, uh, forgetting what I even, I've said at, at points here, but well over 90% of people that are being tested do not have coronavirus. It appears from what we can see that well over 90% of people who have sus symptoms suspicious for COVID-19, in fact, do not have it. But for good data, what we need is to, is to do massive testing of, of all people, not just those with symptoms. I find it quite astonishing that at the moment, we don't have a good handle on whether this uh, asymptomatic patient to symptomatic patient ratio is one to one or seven to one. Either way, it appears that a majority of people who contract the virus don't actually get ill. And of those that do, those well-tread numbers here of, of 80% have only mild infections. Well, that's obviously a large overestimation. But whatever the true number of infected patients is, 
and whatever the true fatality rate is, the key metric right now is what are the absolute numbers of sick patients, patients requiring oxygen, hospital care, and particularly those who require ventilator support versus the number of hospital beds and ventilators we have available. The contributor we have who's been squawking the loudest about this and longest about this has pointed out that there really are two death rates in this. There's one death rate when you have more ventilators than people who need them, and there's quite another death rate when you have more patients than you have machines. Many hospitals in Italy have reached this point, and when they do, that's when doctors make a decision like, well, here's patient A and patient B. We've got one ventilator. Which one do we put on it? So we circle back to the fact that it's important we not reach that saturation point, and what's going to help that is people sheltering in place. We also know that a lot of ventilators are still being held in reserve, or so we understand it's time those started getting shipped out. Mr. Vermillion is doing some research on do-it-yourself ventilators, and uh, while you know I, I, we need more information in that area, it certainly seems that you know ventilatory support from something you can string together is no doubt better than nothing. A lot of people looking into that one. We need to take a break at this moment. This is Radio Parallax Special Edition Public Service Announcement. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll be right back. Sanitizer, hot water, wash them till they're blue. Wash your dirty hands so you don't get the flu. Wash your hands. Wow, 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 wow. Wash your hands. Wow, 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 wow. When you're giving high fives, try not to touch your eyes. Don't pick things off the street. It's like you touch the toilet seat. 